0: Roll Tide, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, and we're excited about what the show's got in store today because it features one of the brightest stars in the storied history of Alabama football. Over the years, the careers of Crimson Tide quarterbacks have been characterized by winning, whether they could run faster or throw it further than the guys with gaudier stats. They didn't always have the flashiest resume, but by the end of the day they'd make a play and find a way to win. We've had them in all shapes and sizes with skill sets that were everything from average to awesome. But they all knew that every touchdown was a team thing and that the greatest gridiron glories are all stories about warriors that won because they worked so well together. Alabama's been blessed with success for so long because there's been a string of great signal callers that stretches way back into the 20th century. Dixie Howell played on teams with Paul Bryant in the early 30s that ran the Notre Dame box and racked up wins in the Rose Bowl. Harry Gilmer made the jump pass popular in the 40s and got even more press as a punter and a kick returner. He had a successful pro career and then spent a lot of years as an NFL scout. Bobby Skelton was one of Coach Bryant's first quarterbacks in the late 50s. He was small, but tough and talented. Now, he played on teams that struggled in those last years under Coach Whitworth, but he was a gamer. He later became an NFL official and worked up until just a few years ago. Pat Trammell came to Alabama in 58 as part of that great first recruiting class for Coach Bryant. Who used to say Trammell couldn't run and he couldn't throw? All he could do was beat you. Pat Trammell quarterbacked the Tide to a national title in 1961, and he may have been one of the best leaders any Tide team's ever seen. When he died of cancer at the age of 28 in 1968, Coach Bryant said it was the saddest day of his life. Joe Namath the Beaver Falls Bomber. Started as a sophomore in 62 and taking over Trammell's number 12 jersey, raised the bar at Bama with a talent level that rattled cages all over the country, ability that caused Bryant to call him the greatest athlete he ever coached. Now, Steve Sloan wasn't a first-round draft pick like Namath, but he was a first-class passer, smart, deadly accurate, knew the game, and knew how to win. He went on to become a college head coach and served as athletic director at Alabama in the late 1980s. Kenny the Snake Stabler, one of my all-time favorites, was a great athlete, and while he, like Namath, spent some time in Coach Bryant's doghouse, he got it done on the field in spectacular fashion, spearheading an attack that led the 66 team to an undefeated season and a 34-7 Sugar Bowl stomping over Nebraska that may have been as good a game as any Alabama team had ever played up to that point. Scott Hunter was a pro-style passer that put a lot of points on the board, and he won out in that famous shootout with Archie Manning in 69 when Bama beat Ole Miss in the first primetime telecast of a regular season game at Legion Field. Terry Davis from Bogalusa, Louisiana, was Bama's first wishbone quarterback and led us to the watershed win against USC in the 71 game at the Coliseum in Los Angeles. He was so quick he could turn out the lights and be in the bed before the room got dark. Richard Todd was big and fast and could throw, and he wound up on the Jets roster with Namath and then started for several years after that. Uh, Jeff Rutledge was a great college passer and later played in several Super Bowls with various NFL teams. Stedman Shealy was a lot like Terry Davis, quick as a hiccup and tough as nails. Walter Lewis was a gifted athlete and he was on the field for the 315 game. He was one of the most talented athletes BAMAS had at any position and he had the honor of starting in Coach Bryant's last game at the Liberty Bowl in Memphis in 1982. Gary Hollingsworth came off the bench under Bill Curry and carried Bama to a huge comeback win in Jackson against Ole Miss when the Tide fell behind 21-0 and wound up winning 62-28. Jay Barker went 35-2-1 as a starter at Bama and led Alabama to another national championship when the Tide took all the hot air out of the Miami Hurricanes with that famous 34-13 win in New Orleans. Tyler Watts was as tough as they come and he did a terrific job of leading the team through a time of transition with some really big wins. Andrew Zow had some great games too including the 31-7 win at Auburn in 01 that became an instant classic. Brody Croyle, Had a rifle arm. And even though things were messy there for a minute with Mike Shula coming in after Fran ran and the Mike Price predicament, he signed the papers to play with the Tide and no one who saw it will ever forget the game he had against the Gators and that 31-3 victory in Bryant-Denny in 2005. And AJ, what can you say? He's led an offensive attack that's helped Bama go back-to-back. He's already got his degree and he'll be trying to go three for three in 13. Amazing stuff. Now there was one Bama quarterback that came along at a time when the tide wasn't as high as it had been before or would later be under Bryant. But the man from Montgomery eventually found fame on the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. Brian Bartlett's star has a resume that rivals that of any player that ever played the game. He was a late bloomer, but when he came into his own, he won at the highest professional level for a long time. His winning ways started before he became a big name in the big leagues when he led the Sydney Lanier High School team to an undefeated season. Subsequent to that, he was named All-State and had college scholarship offers from all over the country. Uh, the Bama team he played on as a freshman went 10-2, and including a 61-6 to win over Syracuse in the 1953 Orange Bowl that set a record for the largest margin of victory in a bowl game, a record that stood for 55 years. So one thing he and A.J. McCarron have in common is wearing number 10 at Bama and making great memories in Miami. Now, after his senior year at Alabama, he was selected by Green Bay in the 17th round of the 1956 NFL draft. By the end of his 15-year playing career in 1971, he'd led Green Bay to five NFL championships played in the Pro Bowl four times, was named the NFL's MVP in 1966, he made the NFL's 1960s All-Decade team, the Packers Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and was rated the number 51 NFL player of all time by NFL.com. Now, he not only led the Pack in back-to-back wins in the first two Super Bowls, he was also named the MVP in both games. And while Tiders still win wearing number 10, no one will ever be seen with number 15 in green again because the Packers expressed their regard for him by retiring his number. You know, there are a lot of things about being an Alabama alum that I'm proud of, and I have to say that knowing I earned a degree from the same place this man did is right there at the top of the list. Mr Starr, it's an honor to meet you and thank you so much for taking time to join us today.
1: Well thank you, Steve. I appreciate those kind comments, but please call me Bart, not Mr. That's too formal. <laughs> well,
0: I'm only gonna call you by your first name because you gave me permission, okay? That's great. Oh, that's super first of all, how are you doing and how's your family?
1: I'm doing super and the family's well. I have the greatest wife in the world. We, I've heard uh, that. Well, we've been married fifty nine years and she doesn't look fifty nine years old. And when someone
0: says that to me, I say, Well, she was only three when I married her. <laughs> <laughs> Now her name is Cherry. Cherry, that's mm-hmm. what I thought. Yeah, great. So, so you're living here in Birmingham, right? You know, it's 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 so great that you chose to move back here. What what was the deciding factor in all this? Other than probably she made the decision anyway.
1: <laughs> the cold weather in Wisconsin. <laughs> we lived there thirty years, and we were in our thirtieth year up there. And we were standing in our front uh, by the front window in the living room and. I'll always remember this. And she said, guess where I'm going next month? This was in late December, middle December. I said, where? She said, back to Alabama.
0: (laughs) And you're welcome to join me if you like. Oh, man. We're going to talk about that in a minute because I I have always, you know, I love watching those late season, those December-January games up, up north. But why? But I'm trying to imagine how you guys played and that stuff. Just makes me cold sitting here thinking about it. What? Goodness gracious! You know, I'm always interested in hearing what the recruiting process was like for players that come to Alabama and why they decided that Alabama would be the place they'd call her college home. You know, you played ball at Sidney Lanier back in Montgomery back when it was the main high school. That was before Robert E. Lee and J.D. and all those other places. Uh, and that, that town has always had a heavy Auburn influence, too. What was the recruiting atmosphere like back then for you regarding the rivalry, and how did it all unfold for you?
1: Well, it's difficult to uh, sum it up that quickly, but uh, it was just very well done, I thought. And I had a coach who, ironically, he uh, had close ties to Kentucky, and I was heavily recruited by Kentucky and had a, a, a friend, developed a friend in Babe Perilli, and because of that, I came within an eyelash of going to Kentucky, except that this lady whom I had fallen in love with in high school as a junior, uh, I, I knew she was going to Auburn, and I had enough common sense to know that if I went to Lexington, Kentucky, and she went to Auburn, Alabama, I'd lose her. So I called the greatest audible of my life and went to Alabama.
0: Well, now what, okay, now she, <laughs> but she, she was planning on going to Auburn, but what, what came into the mix that made you decide to go to Tuscaloosa?
1: Well, I could, uh, with a, I could, oh, thumb a ride with somebody or do something and go back and forth, maybe even meet her in Montgomery, maybe even go as far as Auburn sometime and just to stay in touch with her because I knew that someday I wanted to marry that lady.
0: There you go. Well, so. it didn't take you long to call that play, hon. That, that offensive coordination was set in place pretty early. So she actually went to Auburn yes, she while did. you were in school at Alabama. Yes. Um, a tale of two cities. Goodness gracious. You know, Alabama actually played a few games at Crampton Bowl uh, there in Montgomery up until the 50s. I know we played Kentucky there at least once, by the way, and Southern Miss several times. You know, in some ways it seems kind of odd we played there, but in the early 50s, like we, we were talking about this just a few minutes ago. Uh, Denny Stadium as it was called then right. still only seated about twenty five thousand, which is what Crampton Bowl still seats now. Uh, what was it like having Alabama games in your hometown?
1: It was a giant thrill. Uh I would just be uh numb going out to the to the ball game in a in a car with somebody and knowing we we're going to be able to sit there and have decent seats, it was
0: just, just a thrill that's hard to describe. And, and you know, uh, for, for folks that haven't been there, uh, as wonderful, as amazing as Bryant-Denny is, Crampton Bowl has possibly the best sight lines of any stadium in the state because uh, the stands run parallel to the sideline. That's not concave, so you're very close to the field, and it's a very steep grade. Uh, so if you're on row 20 or 25 on the 50-yard line, you're almost looking down at the team. So the, the sight lines are really great. If you ever get a chance to see a game there, it's it, it's great. You know, 60 years later, Bryant Denny seats 101,000 people, which is 8,000 more seats than the population of the city. And in the, <laughs> <laughs> and in the last six years, we've had 5, 500, 000, 16, 530 feet fans, over five hundred thousand fans attend the spring game for an annual average of eighty six thousand for a day. Wow! I think every player that ever suited up played a part in growing these. In, incredible game day gatherings uh, that we have there in Tuscaloosa. What's it feel like to look at this amazing thing that's been built by Bama and know you helped make it happen?
1: It's it's a humbling effect because you were pleased to have been a part of it. And at a time when there, you weren't receiving that much attention about it because we weren't performing to the level that – that they do today and have the the record out there for everybody to be focused on, but it's just a joyful thing to think about.
0: Do do you get to go to attend any games occasionally? Oh yes, oh
1: we're down there for a lot of games. Oh man, that's it's. We have season tickets, so there you go. Bart Jr. has the tickets, and occasionally he'll let us use them. Well, that that's one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're we're down there anytime we want to go. Oh, that that's
0: super. <laughs> you know, you played your first years at MAMA under Red Drew, who had taken over for Frank Thomas who was one of our great coaches, you know, you don't hear much about Coach Drew because he kind of got caught in that span between Thomas and Bryant, and I have to admit, I don't know a lot about him, although I know his granddaughter, who still lives in Tuscaloosa. She's a friend of mine. What was he like, and how does he fit into the big picture you have about Bama over the years? Fill us in on that.
1: Well, he was a good coach. I thought he was well-organized, had good assistants, and I think just because of the timing of when he was there and so forth and the record around it, that he just never received enough credit for what he was doing because he was building some good people there, I think.
0: Well, and he had a pretty good overall record, the kind of record most schools would settle for in a right. heartbeat. Um, and, and, and again, uh, that run that Wallace Wade and Frank Thomas had had for really about 30 or 40 years was was pretty strong. So there was some momentum built into it. What... What was it like playing playing at Alabama when you got there?
1: Well, obviously it was a great thrill because of the history and tradition and coming out of, a, I thought, a very, very strong high school background. I played for a man by the name of Bill Mosley, who was uh, very successful up in in Kentucky and an excellent coach, taught us the the basic fundamentals of the entire game, which was uh, wonderful, and uh, I'll always be grateful for that because he was – Truly, a teacher, a coach should be a teacher, an outstanding teacher. This one was. He was. He was wonderful.
0: You know it. it yeah, we mentioned Sidney Lanier. Uh, now for those of you that aren't familiar out there, uh, Montgomery's a one of the larger cities in the state of Alabama, and Sidney Lanier, the poets, right. um, was the major city high school for many years until a couple of others were built and. Uh, high school football in Montgomery was a big deal. Friday nights at Crampton Bowl, you're you're going to fill that place up a lot of the time, <laughs> and the rivalries they have there. And it's it's kind of a shame that that's fallen off a little bit in the in the last few years. It's funny how sometimes the college game has gotten bigger, the pro game's gotten bigger, but in a lot of ways, the high school game at you know the 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 game at the community level, um, uh, has kind of faded a little bit in in some areas, not all of them.
1: Sure, well, I'm sorry to hear that because you're right. It's. Uh... It was very strong in the years that we were there, and we were grateful for that, and just proud to be a part of it.
0: When you were at Alabama, what what was the, you know, you obviously played quarterback and and kicked. You were a punter. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you do any kick returning?
1: No, I wasn't good enough to be a kick returner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wasn't quick or fast enough to do that. <laughs> well, oh, now if I'm not mistaken, too, you had one of the better punting averages in the conference back then.
1: I did. I was blessed to be able to. I would punted in high school, so I was well prepared and had a coach in high school who was an outstanding teacher, as I mentioned earlier, a fellow by the name of Bill Mosley, And uh, so it was very, very helpful to have had that kind of preparation going to Alabama.
0: Well, I know a lot of coaches these days especially don't like the idea of their punter being out there trying to tackle a returner, especially if that punter's the quarterback. But I've always thought having your quarterback as your punter really created a lot of possibilities and put a lot of stress on the defense because they've got to defend every possibility every time you go into punt formation absolutely if you were coaching would you use some kind of philosophy like that I mean once you get to midfield you don't need somebody to kick it 60 yards and give them 20 by putting by by kicking it for a touchback you know?
1: Well, yes, and again, I think it all comes down to what your strengths of your team are, what your philosophy is, a lot of things that it's hard to sit here and talk about if, unless you're inside with them, but uh, it was just a very helpful, exciting experience for me personally.
0: What kind of offense did you run when you were at Alabama?
1: Well, it would it would be like just a, a T formation if you want to go back to old-time yeah. old uh, terms Full house, and so forth. Field. Yes, and so we, uh, we didn't have that much motion to the outside and that sort of thing, that much. But uh, it was at, the, at the time, it was basic, good, aggressive, and uh, I think the coach did an excellent job with it.
0: So the offensive line was uh, in a three- or four-point stance firing off the ball instead yes. of just standing up and basically doing a uh, vertical bench press.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, so uh, generally you had three backs in the backfield with you or you'd have two backs, and you split people out? Or... It, would, it was a mix. Mix.
1: mm mm-hmm. Most of the time, three in the backfield.
0: Now, were you calling plays on the field, or was it sent in, or how did that work for we, you?
1: We were trained to call them, and, and they'd send stuff in to you occasionally, but they had prepared us for uh, what we needed to do and how we wanted to do it, and uh, we felt very comfortable.
0: So the preparation may not have been as complex, but it put prepared you to go on the field and run the game. Absolutely. Wow, that's super. So you weren't getting as much input from the press box. No. And you weren't standing up and doing the prairie dog thing, looking at the sideline. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that had to be a lot of fun.
1: Well, it was. And obviously, it would have been a lot of fun the other way around, too. But uh, uh, that's an experience, as I've told you earlier before we began this show, that uh, I'll always remember and be grateful for, for what it, it taught me and helped me.
0: You know, Coach Whitworth, I think they called him Ears was his nickname, played on some great teams at Bama, you know, uh, in the early 30s. And he had been an head coach at Oklahoma State, which was called Oklahoma A&M back then, by the way. You know, while I've heard he was a really good assistant coach, he kind of struggled in his three years at Bama. And I know he was just, he was there for your last year. It was his first year. What was going on back then as you were kind of uh, ending your career at Alabama that led to that situation where we we kind of had a real slump there after you left.
1: I can't say that much from the other side, but from my perspective, our side uh, it was difficult because here we were as seniors, we we're hoping to play, uh, and we weren't. And I can understand that there sort of pushing the seniors aside we're going to be gone after that year and they're working with these young ones coming along and that was their philosophy so as a senior i I played very little
0: well now if i'm not mistaken you you had some kind of injury was it a back injury
1: well yes i had hurt my lower back a little bit but that was not the problem for not playing more
0: okay well and it's it's amazing too with the rehab services and resources we've got now injuries are a whole different ball game uh But uh, did that bother you through your pro career? Because you played another 15 years.
1: Well, it it didn't bother me, thankfully, because uh, the basketball coach at the University of Alabama at that time was a man by the name of Johnny D. Well, Johnny D was a good friend of the director of player personnel with the Packers. And that's the reason I was taken by the Packers. I probably wouldn't have been drafted by anybody.
0: It pays to have friends, doesn't it? Absolutely. It oh, my sure does. Your, Johnny D. Coach the, D. The Rocket 8. Absolutely. And now the basketball program was was sitting on all cylinders back then. Was it ever. And uh, Foster was the place to be. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've recently renovated Foster for the women's basketball program. It's a fabulous facility now. So you folks, if, if you get a chance, visit Foster Auditorium. Next time you're on campus, you won't believe what they've done with it. You know, you played with some really great players at Bama, even in years where the record wasn't all that great. If there had been the amount of media coverage back then we have now, they'd have been celebrities. Bobby Marlowe, great running back. And a lot of people know he grew up in a children's home in Troy right? and may have been one of the best backs. Well, not may have, he was one of the best backs we've ever had at Alabama. Can you tell us a little bit about Bobby Marlowe?
1: Well, uh, only that in watching him, he was ahead of me, of course, in school, but in watching him, I was highly impressed with his, his capabilities, uh, his flexibilities uh, his attitude. When he entered a game, you could tell that this man was going in. He wanted to get something done.
0: Oh man, that's that's good stuff. Now, you know where I'm going to go when I bring up the 1954 Cotton Bowl. <laughs> I got to meet Tommy Lewis a few years ago and bless his heart, I could tell he still struggles with what happened that day. <clears throat> he seemed like just a, a great guy and after talking to him, I know he was just being honest when he said he was just too full Alabama. What do you remember about that 1954 Cotton Bowl game?
1: Well, how frustrated it was to
0: (laughs) not perform better than we did in it. Against against Rice.
1: Right. But uh, the biggest thing I think that any college player will tell you uh, afterwards was the thrill of going to a postseason game in a quality situation like the Cotton Bowl? Yeah. You go to Dallas and went to Dallas in those days. It was fabulous. It was just just a fraction under going to the Rose Bowl. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, that, that. Well, again, back then there were the four traditional major bowls, and that was pretty much it. And they were all on New Year's Day. Yeah. So there was one big day of college football, and that was uh, that was a super time. The 1953 Orange Bowl uh, was played in what was then called Burdine Stadium, Uh, and you guys had a huge win against the Orange men from Syracuse. In those days, scoring 61 points against a major college opponent was almost unheard of. That had to be a lot of fun, too. What was that day like in Miami for a freshman from Montgomery? (laughs)
1: Probably the greatest thrill you could ever describe or attempt to describe because uh, to win a game by that many points, it's just incredible. It's hard to even imagine.
0: Now, I I believe Corky Tharp played in that game. Mm Mm-hmm. Hootie Ingram ran, I believe, an interception back for 80 yards in that game. Now, it was in, quite a while, quite a
1: distance. I'm, I don't remember the exact distance.
0: but And, and uh, he, uh, now, of course, Hootie Ingram was later athletic director for a while. In fact, I spoke to him when he was at Florida State and was asking him to come back. <laughs> and, and he said he wanted to. Oh uh, gosh, this has been 25 years ago. But uh, there were a lot of great players in that game. And, and again, uh, that record, that margin of victory was a school record in a bowl game and a national record for the margin of victory in a bowl game that, like we were saying a minute ago, stood for 55 years until 2008. Wow. Uh, so that, that must have been an amazing experience. It was. Uh, you know, there are a lot of guys with Alabama ties you ran across in the pros. You started out with the Packers, like you were saying, splitting time and getting to know uh, Babe Perilli, who co- played for Coach Bryant at Kentucky. Uh, the Packers Indoor Practice Facility was later named for Don Hudson. Uh, and uh, you coached Scott Hunter later on yes. uh, when you are the head man at Green Bay. And Green Bay is a smaller community, a little like Montgomery and Tuscaloosa to some degree. Did that make moving across country and the in the adjustment to pro ball any easier?
1: Well, it was just a, a great adjustment, I thought, because of the quality of the, of the community. And within just a matter of very short time— you could pick up on the excitement, the interest, the uh, uh, just the greatness of the people, of how they supported their team. If you were to go to Green Bay, Wisconsin today, of course, the stadium is gorgeous. But if you were to go even today after all of the improvements and so forth have taken place, and you look around and you think, this is a team in the National Football League because of the size of the community. The community is small.
0: You're absolutely right. I had the distinct pleasure. Uh, in 1998, uh, a friend of mine uh, made a trip up to Wisconsin. Uh, we were not going to Green Bay, but we thought it, we were actually going to Whitewater, Wisconsin. But we thought, we're going to get this close to Green Bay. We're going to go by and see Lambeau Field. And as luck would have it, they were playing an exhibition game. It was in August against the New England Patriots. So um, we went to Green, uh, rented a car and drove to Green Bay Drove up to the stadium two or three hours early, and it was a sellout. It was it seated <laughs> 53,000. It, it took us two hours to find a ticket. You know, people everywhere. Oh, yeah. And now one of the things I noticed about it was how clean that area around the stadium was. It was immaculate. You could have done surgery in the road up there. Yes, you I mean, could have. I didn't see a cigarette butt on the ground the whole oh, time right. I was it there. Wasn't it great to see? It's amazing. Uh, Same it, way today. absolutely, Uh, everybody was friendly, Uh, it was exciting, and of course, being in Green Bay in August, it was only like 75 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) A little different
1: from here in Alabama, Uh, right? Oh, you
0: go to a game, (laughs) if you went to an Alabama game in August, it's 97 degrees with 100% humidity. But uh, one of the things we got a real kick out of was that uh, we we got a ticket and we went in the stadium and... uh, uh, had seats in one of the end zones i, I can't remember if it was the north or south end anyway so my buddy and I, of course we both wore Obama gear and because uh, we we felt way and we got such a big kick out of seeing the that the indoor practice facility was named for don hudson and the letters on the side of the building are huge yes they are uh, so it was, it was like a little extension of being at home So, you know, what was so fun was we we sat down. The teams are out there warming up, and I look down, and there's somebody coming up the aisle to find a seat with a Coke and a hot dog, and they got a big Alabama T-shirt on (laughs) right there in Green Bay. So, you know, you can't get away from our folks, I'm telling you. Hey, you know, you were the most valuable player. Congratulations in the first two Super Bowls, and Joe Namath won that award the next year in the third Super Bowl. You know, so Bama guys quarterback the first three Super Bowl wins. As different You as you and Joe are, you're from the same football family. Some people don't think about Bama putting a lot of quarterbacks in the pros, but in those years, you guys were the cream of the crop. I mean, I know it made us proud. How do the relationships you forge in college football compare with the ones that you make in pro ball?
1: Well, it's it's difficult to say it easily right here on a a microphone. You'd have to experience it, be with it, and, and have it extended over a period of time to appreciate it. But it all comes down to the quality of the people that you're around. I don't care where you are, I really believe that the quality of the people is what it's all about.
0: Coach Lombardi was building a dynasty there at the same time Coach Bryant was putting Bama back on the national map. It must have been an amazing period in your life to be part of Coach Lombardi's run in the NFL, which, gosh, they named the championship trophy after him, Yeah. Uh, and watch Bama get back on top while all this is going on, too. What sticks out in your mind about how those two great coaches achieved such stunning successes in their own way and, and, and the similarities?
1: Well, all I can do relative to Coach, uh, to Coach uh, Bryant commenting about it is just read about the things that happened. Coach Lombardi was a fabulous gentleman. I always remember the first meeting we had with him, when he opened the meeting by thanking the Green Bay Packers for the opportunity to come there, Coach. and does that tell you something about this man's integrity up front, right, initially? That's how he opened the meeting. And he quickly turned to us. He said, gentlemen, we're going to relentlessly chase perfection, knowing full well we won't catch it because nothing's perfect. But we're going to relentlessly, and that's just how he said it, chase it. He said, because in the process, we will catch excellence. Then he got real close to us, who were sitting in this meeting, right up front. I happened to be fortunate enough to be up in the first or second row, so he was just right in front of us. He said, we're going to relentlessly chase it, I said, he said, because in the process, we will catch excellence. He said, I'm not remotely interested in being just good. Now, this is how he opens our meeting. God, we didn't even need a seat after that. We could just, we were so crouch, We were ready.
0: <laughs> you know, those words sound a lot like a guy on Tuscaloosa right yes, now. Yes, sir. Relentless. Yep. Uh, you know, just, you, you, you never take your foot off the pedal. Right. He, you know, the, I, I've seen the, the NFL films of him diagramming that sweep and the uh, lanes and explaining the, the blocking scheme and yep. how that played out. And it's such a simple play, and it's, it's just it's beautiful. It is. You know, what, what was it like in uh, staff meetings and, and game preparation with Coach Lombardi?
1: Exciting because he, he taught so well, and he was just a, f- a fabulous uh, teacher because of his organization. He, when he went into something that was going to be working with you in that particular meeting, one, he kept it very simple. He didn't have just string stuff out for 40 minutes or something. He was just bing, 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 bing. And that's where you would focus that day. But he was so well organized and so disciplined in how he approached it, he kept it in just simple little pieces. And it was so easy to learn.
0: So he was very efficient. Absolutely. So the energy you expended wasn't wasted on superfluous activity. Never. If you, if you were taking snaps, it was something that was going to happen on Sunday. Absolutely. Tell us about the guys you played with. I mean, you know, even even though that's been 40, 40 45, 50 years, Jerry Kramer, Fuzzy Thurston, Jim Taylor, Paul Horning, Max McGee, uh, Willie Davis, Ray Nitschke, goodness gracious, most people can still rattle off those names. You're leaving he-
1: one good one out. <laughs> Forrest Gregg. Forrest Gregg. He's our right right side tackle, and man, he was fabulous. But the one that I'm always disappointed was never mentioned enough and I, I I write and recruit for him every year is Bob Skoronsky. He was our left side tackle or blind side, you uh-huh. might say, quarter right handed quarterback. Because Bob Skaronsky was our captain.
0: He's your bodyguard.
1: Oh, was he ever? And he is not in the Hall of Fame. And so every year I recruit. I try to get up there and with somebody and please, please give consideration to this man. I've I've seen many who are in the Hall of Fame. And who they are and I can I can tell you this without without any kind of partiality. There's several of those that they're not even Bob Skaronsky's class, not even close.
0: Wow. Well, when you look back at what the Packers did in that run that you guys had, and oh, that, yeah. that run was an eight- or ten-year deal. That wasn't a flash no, in the pan.
1: No, it wasn't. See, Forrest Gregg on the other side was a part of that as well, and Forrest and I were honored to go into the Hall of Fame in 1977, and they still haven't gotten Bob Skoronsky in there, and I'm, I don't care if I write it till I die. I'm, I'm going to write him and urge him to please give him consideration.
0: The, well, anybody that played left tackle on the offensive team uh, of that right. Green Bay squad. Uh, that's right ought to be given serious consideration for any award that exists.
1: Exactly. And the right side, with no disrespect to him, because Forrest Gregg was a fabulous tackle, but he and I went in in 1977, and they haven't uh, admitted Bob yet, so we've...
0: Keep writing. Still, those, keep still, writing those letters. Oh, don't worry. I'm gonna, keep,
1: <laughs> I'm gonna keep writing them. I go up. I go up and visit with them.
0: Okay, now i want to go back to that ice bowl we were talking about. <laughs> I remember watching that game, and I, and I, you know I kind of think just about everybody that ever watched pro football that year it was 1967. Everybody that had a television set watched that game. The mm-hmm. Dallas Cowboys had, had had a fabulous year. Yes, they had. Um, just super Don Meredith was your counterpart yep. there, and uh, uh, just a heck of a game. And if I'm, I can't remember the temperature, but it was, I think you could have frozen alcohol in the stands that day. It was
1: was 20 below. That was a true temperature. The wind chill, 60 below. (laughs) My wife sat, my wife sat outside in the stadium. There was no inside seating in those days. She sat outside throughout that entire game.
0: (laughs) How do you, how how do you, how do you stay out in it at all? I don't understand it, and that, thats amazing that you had the the guts and the toughness, the mental toughness, the 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 willingness to put your—I mean, taken for granted—you you got a lot of a lot of things at stake. It's a championship game, it's national TV, but I don't—I can't understand being in 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 weather like that and surviving.
1: Well, you you're mentioning all these words. I think it comes down to attitude. Because when your attitude is where it should be, you work your way right through it. Because that's what you're focused on. you not. It just. It takes that weather and all that other stuff out of your out of your mind. Because you're focused on what you have to do. That's your attitude. And when your attitude is that strong and that good, you just go get it done.
0: Well, and that's why you want all those other games that's too. Exactly right. That's amazing. But now, just to nuts and bolts. You got a football uniform. A football uniform is not really designed to hold heat in. <laughs> no, what, it's not. <laughs> what did, did you? Were you wearing long johns? Were you? I mean, what did you do to try? Was there any? I mean, obviously, there's not a room. You can't wear a whole lot of extra clothing uh, under a football uniform. What did you do to try to help get deal with that cold?
1: Well, you, there wasn't much to do except to wear a, a, some of a light sweatshirt type thing underneath your uh-huh. ger- your jersey. That's what we had.
0: Wow. Now, I remember the field being frozen so hard that cleats weren't digging in. Not and,
1: well. The, the longer it, the game went along, the tougher it became. It became, it became The field became as hard as this floor that we have our feet on right here.
0: Oh, my goodness. And, of course, now the play down on the goal line. And they, yeah. you watch the, the clips of it and Dallas's defensive lines, you know, trying to look like a pitcher, trying yeah. to uh, dig a little trench to oh, uh, yeah. push off in. Yeah, you know, but you guys got the push, and you guys made the blocks. Did you go over the? It was a gap on the right side. Is that correct?
1: Well, we didn't call it by A's like that, but that was basically where we ran. Yes, because Dallas had a great defense, had yeah. a great team. Doomsday. But we uh, were, but we saw in preparing for them, and then earlier out in the field a couple of times on short yardage, we saw this play work, and so we knew it could. Just the footing down there was that was the problem. But uh, Jethro Pugh was an outstanding defensive tackle for the Cowboys. And huge. And huge. You come, you're ahead of me because, see, the Cowboys had developed what we labeled a submarine technique on defense, on short yardage. Right. They charged so low that you couldn't block them. All you could do is fall on them because they just charged right down on the ground.
0: Couldn't get any leverage.
1: No, you couldn't, except for one guy. Jethro Pugh was so tall and so big he couldn't get down that low, and we saw that. And we had run it two other times out in the field and, and run it, oh, gosh, at least gained at least three three yards. So we knew the play would work. The problem was down there near the goal line. It had become so hard and slick. As I said, it's like this wooden floor we're on right here sitting on that we knew we had to be able to get it in in that particular play. And so we uh, we called this this wedge play and turned to give it to the our fullback, which is a normal thing. And the fullback was slipping and sliding. He hardly got back to the line of scrimmage. I flipped the formation around so that it wouldn't look like the same formation, but basically ran the same play. Fullback slipped again and didn't get up there. So I took a timeout, and I ran to the sidelines, and I said, Coach, there's nothing wrong with the play. I've talked to the lineman. They can get their footing. But I said, the problem is the backs can't get up there. They can't slip. I mean, they would slip and s- sliding. I said, and I stood up in front of them. I said, I'm standing like this, up like this, with my feet parallel just in a normal stance while I'm under the center. I said, I can just shuffle my feet and lunge in, so help me. This is what Coach Lombardi said and how he said it. He said, then run it. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that as long as I live. And I was laughing like I am now going back to the huddle, and I didn't want to see the, have the Cowboys see me laughing. <laughs> oh,
0: man. And there was an Alabama guy on the other side of the line named Leroy Jordan wearing oh, number yeah. 55 for yeah. the Cowboys. yeah. Oh wow, that was!
1: Gosh, I went in by a good yard and a half.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We well, we've all seen the clips a million times. But I tell you what, I bet there was there weren't many times it felt as good to get back in that, back in that locker room as it was that day.
1: It, you're absolutely correct. Oh. It was fabulous. <laughs> oh. no, okay,
0: then you wind up playing in the first. Two Super Bowls. Now, back then it was called the World Championship of the the National Football League. Uh, Exactly. The Super Bowl name didn't come until a little bit later. Right. uh, Played in Los Angeles against the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Right. Tell us a little bit about that first Super Bowl.
1: It was very exciting. I'll always remember that we had no way of knowing how it was going to be received by the people around the country or whatever. But we went to our media day uh, early in the week, we first got there. I, I just had a feeling it was going to be truly spectacular someday because we had never ever seen so many media people before a championship game in our lives.
0: Yeah and, and that Kansas City team had a lot of great athletes did they ever Oh super athletes you bet they it did. wasn't a close game though no execution.
1: Well it, it, that's all that's what it comes down to.
0: Now there's some stories. I don't know if they're true or not so we'll we'll depend on you to clarify this that uh, uh for instance max mcgee uh, enjoyed his stay in los angeles a little bit <laughs> yes, more than the, a little bit more than some and that he was uh uh he had to kind of pull himself together to play the game but he wound up having that one-handed grab for a touchdown uh tell us a little bit about max mcgee and his preparation for that first super bowl
1: well max was one of those interesting guys that uh uh, he, he found a way to kind of bend and lean knees around curfew times. And so <laughs> I'll always remember the day of the game going down, the morning of the game, walking up to the front desk to pick up a paper, and I'd have to glance to my left through the front door of the hotel there, and here comes Max through the door at 7 a.m. And my first thought was, oh, my God, here we are, the greatest game, biggest game in our lives, and he's been out all night. And he had been, but typically of Max, when he had to come into the game, when Boyd Dowler got bumped around there and injured a little bit for a while, he played like gangbusters. But wow. that was Max McGee.
0: Mm, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, my, my guess is that when you watch how Coach Saban runs the Bama program now, you see a lot of characteristics that look very familiar uh, to, to somebody with your background. What are the things you like as a former player and coach when you watch the way our team goes about its business these days? Which team? Uh, Alabama.
1: Oh, Coach Saban. I like the organization that you can sense and and pick up on very, very quickly. You just see that this man has been extremely well prepared. He has those guys ready for every situation. And I think you have to admire that because it takes a lot of practice, a lot of organization, and a lot of coordination with all of your other assistant coaches and the players so that it's an effort, a team, truly. Because I I don't want this to sound corny, but years ago, Uh, I read a statement by someone, and I think Coach Lombardi actually had said it at the time, but he said, team, together, everyone achieves more. And it's so true. Together, everyone achieves more.
0: What a great word. Isn't it? Man, that's super. You know, you played behind, like like we were talking about a minute ago, a great offensive line, a Hall of Fame offensive line at Green Bay. Uh, Alabama had a tremendous offensive line last year. Does the football player in you ever think about how much it fun fun it'd be to play in Bryant Denny now with the kind of players Coach Saban's putting on the field?
1: No, I just admire the the players that they have, the coaching that they've been receiving, obviously, and just admire being a be a fan watching it up there. Yeah. Uh, we were grateful for what we experienced when we had it, but I like to see those today experiencing those same type same type of things.
0: You know, there's always a lot of talk, especially in the media, about how the game supposedly changed and evolved this way or that way. But at the end of the day, almost every year, the teams that can run the ball and stop the run, uh, be ahead in the takeover ratio, teams that can block and tackle, they're the ones that come out on top. In spite of all the things that have altered the way the game's played now, have the core concepts that create success really changed at all?
1: Well, it's hard to say because unless you're an insider, in quotes, I think it'd be tough to know.
0: You know, uh, because we're on the internet, uh, Bart, Bama fans all over the world get to listen to the show, and I know they're going to have a great time hearing what you have to say. I know I am. As a former player and coach, and as an alumnus of our university, are there any things you'd like to say or suggest to our Alabama football family out there all over the world?
1: No, I'd just like to uh, plead with them, urge them, challenge them to remain the quality excuse me quality fans that they are because that school any school needs that and so keep it up there keep it very very high as high as you can make it and they'll love you for it
0: bart we got to go but i want to tell you how much i appreciate you coming by and how much i appreciate you taking time to uh, visit with us today would you come back and be on the show with us again sometime We'd
1: be delighted to i've enjoyed being on the show with you
0: Well, you uh, be sure and tell your family hello, uh, that we wish them all the best, and roll tide.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And go Packers.
0: Hey, we're going to take our final time out to tell you about the other options at bigbrainsmedia.com because we want to make sure everybody knows about the other shows. If weather's your thing, we got the king. James Spann is the man meteorologists want to be like when they grow up. So get hooked up with weather brains. The ladies make up a large part of our listening audience, and we have a show specially suited to their sensibilities. We want to invite you to join Jenny and Heather on eavesdrop. They're talking about all kinds of situations females face in a setting that's real, relevant, and relational. You'll love it. They're great. Just Talking It Up does just what the title says, so they're kind of like Big Brains Media's box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, so surprises are standard fare. Worldview Matters likes to look at situations that spark conversations that frequently focus on the contrast created when temporal agendas clash with eternal considerations. High School Heroes is a show hosted by two teenagers talking about things teenagers like to talk about, and the response has been awesome. Great kids having a good time. If you've been through breakups or you're dealing with the devastation of divorce and broken homes, our newest show undone, redone, maybe just what the doctor ordered. Trey and Melody talk from experience about the flaws that fracture families and how faith can facilitate healing and restoration. We're about to launch a new show that'll be all about pro sports, so if you like keeping up with the major leagues, stay tuned in because it'll tip off real soon. And we're having a ton of fun with our Bama Talk Facebook page, so we want to invite you to check it out and chime in with feedback and photos. And feel free to share any pics and posts you like on the page because it's all about Bama. So if you have friends that are fans that haven't found us yet, pass the word. If you enjoy the page, hit the like button and let us know you're out there. We want to be able to brag about having Bama fans from all 50 states and all five continents. You're Dixie's football pride, but we're talking Crimson Tide worldwide. We want to remind everybody everybody that you can find us in the podcast section of iTunes, or on Stitcher, or at bigbrainsmedia.com. Listening to the show is free. The downloads and subscriptions cost absolutely nothing, and when you hit the subscribe button, it saves and stores every show, so you can listen to any episode, anytime you like, as much as you like, at no charge. There's also a free podcast app available for your smartphone or mobile device, so you can listen to the show on the go. You know, like When you're watching news clips of Bama beating Auburn in gymnastics for the 106th consecutive time, or while you're looking for a 12-year-old to tell you how to download Bama Talk to your smartphone, or while you're making videos of your dog gnawing on his new leprechaun chew toy. We're about out of time, so we're going to huddle up and call one last play, which is to say the 8A game is Saturday, April 20th. Unless the mayhem the Mayans predicted ran late and manifests itself between now and then, we want to make sure every seat in the stadium has somebody sitting in it because the boys that just went back-to-back deserve nothing less than the best. But it's time to head for the locker room, so we want to thank Bart Starr one more time for taking time to talk to us today. Wow, what a treat. So for Mark Phillips and James Spann and everybody behind Bama Talk on Big Brains Media, we had a ball, y'all. Till next time, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide.